0: Welcome to the One Hoss Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we have a very special guest, Nancy Liu. Hello. (laughs) Hey, Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting on this podcast, I think, about a year after I started it, partially because, you know, we have been getting amazing guests and alumni on, and you're like one of those entrepreneurs that I've always admired. And I've admired you because, me personally, I'm from LA. Well, I'm not from LA. I'm from Michigan, but I live in LA, you know, for ten plus years. And ever since I started my entrepreneurship journey in LA back in 09, and then subsequently like opened up a co-working space, I've heard your name around town a lot because you had built this amazing empire, uh, pretty much starting in LA. But we'll dig into that later. First off, I know you graduated in 2020, but you were uh, the class of 2012, correct? for your undergrad at Berkeley. Yes, that's right. So tell us a little bit about, I guess, yourself first, like where you're from, where you're born, and how you grew up.
1: Yeah, sure. So I was born in China, and right after I was born, my parents went to Europe to go do grad school. They couldn't afford to take me, so I stayed back in China, and for the first basically five years of my life, I was just living with different relatives, aunts and uncles, different grandparents, and I didn't see my parents at all this entire time. Wow. Uh, and then my dad went straight from Europe to Colorado. And then my mom stopped by China, picked me up, and then took me to Colorado. And that was when I was five years old. So I grew up for the, you know, my early American years, I guess, in Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: Wow. Where are you from in China? Where were you born?
1: Yeah, I was born in a little city called Zhenjiang. Uh, it's little because it's only 8 million people, so nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Where is Zhenjiang?
1: Uh, it's in Jiangsu province. So Zhenjiang is most notably known for its vinegar. So it's like all of China uses vinegar made in Zhenjiang.
0: That makes sense. That's Is that close to Shanghai, right?
1: It's about, I would say, yeah, about three-hour drive from... Shanghai. So I definitely, uh, every time I'm in Shanghai, I go to Xinjiang and see my family members. And then my dad's side of the family is in Jiangxi, which I also spent a lot of time there. And that's rural China. That is like the no running water China when I was there Uh, and no flushing toilets.
0: How's your Chinese so good still? I'm curious.
1: I love watching Chinese dramas. But I also, when I was growing up, have to credit, you know, my parents for ensuring that I still learn Chinese. Um, yeah. And I went to Chinese school. I like Chinese school. I was like, a I was a pretty competitive student. So I was like, I want to be the best student at Chinese school. And it was easy to do that because all the other kids really did not want to go to Chinese school. And so it was not hard to be a good student there.
0: <laughs> and, and I guess, were there Chinese school in Colorado?
1: Yeah, there were. Um, And there still are great Chinese schools. Um, It's like Sunday school. You go every Sunday. It's where all the parents get together too to gossip about their kids. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, my parents were very much into
0: that. I do have to ask, growing up in Colorado, what was that like?
1: It was sort of like my, I, I think the things that I remember about growing up, less so my early years in China, but really I feel like growing up in Colorado made a pretty big impact on me. So we grew up in a neighborhood where it was all immigrants. And so my carpool family group was a bunch of kids, and all their parents were also immigrants. And they, a lot of them were also born in a different country. So from kindergarten through fifth grade, the people that I carpool with, uh, my first two friends in America were actually two boys from Iraq. I'm still friends with them and, and keep in touch with them today. And then there's a boy named Dimitri who is from Russia. We had a girl named Kathy from South Korea. We had another boy named Kudzai from Zimbabwe. So these were the kids that I carpool with early on. Uh, and it was so diverse. Um, and I think it was it was pretty awesome. This is not reflective of what the actual demographics of Colorado <laughs> was at the time. But yeah. certainly, it. Uh, I feel like I just grew up in such a, diverse international community. um, Loved it. And I think it wasn't until I went to Berkeley that I realized that I was like really in a very not diverse state. (laughs) Like my high school, there was only a handful of Asians. Uh, And so going to Berkeley where it's half Asian was definitely a different experience.
0: Yeah. That's interesting you bring that up because I grew up in Michigan and I moved to Michigan kind of at a similar age as you um, when I was seven. And that is, it's so funny you say that because moving to California and going to Berkeley, you do realize like it's this shift from being a minority to the majority. And it's hard to realize that, that it isn't diverse when there is such a majority of Asians in terms of diversity of thinking, diversity of just, you know, culture. And it's something that really had to, I think, just grasp with, like deal with. When I moved to California, it felt familiar, but at the same time, it felt very foreign.
1: <laughs> yes, it was. I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to Berkeley prior to setting foot on Berkeley and moving in freshman year.
0: What did you study at Berkeley?
1: So I did a double in uh, business uh, at Haas and then also political economy. I sort of tacked on my last years and I remember going in and applying for the major. And I was like, oh, I'm ready to graduate this semester. And they're like, oh, you can't do that. You can't apply for the major and graduate the same semester. So I said, okay, fine. Instead of spring 2012, I'll make it summer 2012. So I got to do the political economy major.
0: Well, I actually never knew until you just told me before this, this interview that even though your class of 2012, you actually didn't graduate until 2020. Tell us about that.
1: That's right. Yeah. So I actually started uh, one of my companies my senior year. I started co- actually a couple of companies my senior year. Some <laughs> of them worked out. Say, yeah. Some of them, a couple, some, of them yeah. <laughs> some of them did not work out. Some of them worked out. And so school sort of became like, oh, this is like a you know fun thing. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, I would say it wasn't a priority at that point. So I was missing one course the American Cultures course. And I just delayed until I was going to take it the summer after my you know official like walking in graduation. But then of course I started my business and that became the priority. And then I tried again and then it was always like something came up. So I, in total, I think enrolled in the AC course at Berkeley three times and paid the tuition, full tuition for it three times, same professor every single time. And it was just, I'm sure he just thought it was hilarious the third time. It didn't complete it the third time. You think third time's a charm. Uh, it, It wasn't. And it was finally the fourth time during COVID when all the colleges started offering the classes online that I was able to take a online class at San Jose City College. To fulfill my AC course, it was a fantastic course. The professor was great. I think it was like the uh, the most studious I'd ever been as a student um, for any Berkeley related thing because I was I got good grades at Berkeley, but I never went to the class. and did the bare minimum to get an A. Uh, but for this class, I. Did all the readings well in advance of the class and finally uh, got my degrees in 2020. And my sister started as a freshman at Berkeley that same year. And so I joke with her, you know, it took me, I was just waiting uh, to graduate the same year she started. That that was the whole point. But that the reason I actually got really motivated to get it in 2020 and I COVID, of course, made it easier for me to find a course that was available, that yeah. worked with my schedule. Uh, but the other thing is I had joined the board of a publicly traded company. And at the time, I already knew, you know, they were taking a risk. I, I learned that I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest uh, woman on a California public board. And so it was, you know, while... They're doing the background check. You know, they're asking all the questions. It's, I already know, like there's, they're taking a risk to bring on somebody really young. You know, oftentimes you bring on board members that had been CEOs of all other public companies. You know, they are they have a lot more experience. And here I was, 30 years old. And in the background check, they're like, did you graduate? What school did you graduate from? Because they have to file that with the SEC. And then it's on your bios and all the proxy statements and all the filings. And I was yeah. like, I do not have degrees, actually. And I was like, but I told the general counsel, I was like, don't worry, I will have the degrees basically by the next uh, proxy filing. You can then list that I graduated from Berkeley. But as of now, I, I have not.
0: That's hilarious, actually. Because I, I was like, wait, why wouldn't you just carry that that flag of like, I was one of those really successful entrepreneurs who dropped out of college. <laughs> but- no, that's, I know, that's I didn't really
1: want, I'm sure their shareholders already were like, okay, so you're already bringing this person that doesn't really come from an automotive background. It's a car, really a company. And she's super young. And you're telling me she didn't graduate from college. So I didn't want to freak them out too much.
0: That's so funny. But let's go back to Berkeley for a second. You know, you had started Natalie and that was already a really successful startup. I've always actually wondered when I asked you, what pushed you to go start Nplug while Natalie was still going and successful? Can you share with our audience, you know, what Nanaly was and then also what Nplug was?
1: Yeah. So Nanaly Bioscience, I started my basically first semester senior year. Uh, one of the yeah, various companies I started in college. Uh, so for Nanalee, we develop polymers that eliminate refrigeration for temperature sensitive proteins. So that includes enzymes, it includes therapeutics, biologics, and really importantly, it includes vaccines. Uh, And so we work with companies that have these molecules where even if they're shipping it domestically, they might have issues of ensuring that molecule is within that temperature range so that by the time an end user has to use it, uh, it still works. Um, And so I started that senior year and it was not something that was in my expertise. I had met my co-founder at a bar during the winter holidays and we started talking I said, let's start a company together. And we literally started the company the very next day. Uh, and for Implug, sort of a similar story. I was always just getting introduced to awesome people, brilliant people. And so my summer of junior year, I was an intern at Goldman Sachs in their investment banking group. And one of the my fellow interns there, who then went on to work full time at Goldman, he met a guy uh, while he was, um, I guess, in, in Hong Kong. And he said, you know, this guy is looking for a co-founder and a CEO for this company that he's starting. And I thought of you, and I think you guys should just meet. And I was like, all right, I'll meet him. I think first I had a Skype conversation with my co-founder, David Zhu, who I'm actually uh, seeing for lunch on Sunday. So talked to him for a little bit. And then he went up to Berkeley and we met at my sorority. This was, I think, the week before graduation. And he talks to me about InPlug, and he's saying, hey, I want software, uh, really smart software that can power screens and show interactive, dynamic content on screens. And so we talked for about 45 minutes. He tells me, you know, he is basically a college dropout, got accepted into MIT, didn't go because he became a professional poker player. and He was making millions of dollars playing online poker. Uh, and I was like, all right, this person's really smart and he's a good person. And immediately I was like, all right, let's do this. I will uh, start this company with you after that meeting.
0: That story is amazing. Your background, right, was in business and you had started this like biotech company. What was the shift like from that, from Nanaly to Nplug, basically a you know software media advertising company? Of sorts.
1: Yeah, I would say what's interesting, even though they're in very different industry, I would say what I contribute to the company and how I operate with the team and the value I provide to the company is quite similar. I think for Natalie, it was the direction, getting a team together, convincing PhD students from the best schools in the world to trust this person who's only ever taken one chemistry class to join their company and to work for them full time and to get funding for the company. So that's what I did for Natalie's senior year. Similarly for Implug, it was about getting together a team, building an MVP, uh, convincing investors and customers to buy our product. And so in both those cases, I would say it's a sales and strategy value that I bring. And so it wasn't all that different. Now, in terms of the product development cycle, completely different. In biotech, it is years and years. I served on a board of a publicly traded biotech, I would say, company um, called Kindred Biosciences. And uh It had raised a lot of money, had spent a lot of years building a product, but it took a long time. I mean, some of the products are nearly a decade or more to bring it uh, to market. Ultimately, we had a successful acquisition. We were acquired by another public company in the same space, but it's just the sales cycles are so long and the product development cycles are even longer. Uh, So for Implug, what was really refreshing is that your sales cycle can be as short as one phone call, and your product development cycle can also be really fast. I mean, we were, before Plug was acquired, every single week we were making new releases. Every Tuesday there would be new feature releases that were shared with our customers. It was fast paced. It was really exciting. Uh, so from that perspective, I think I prefer the software, building a software company. The impact that Nanalee has, right, is at a different scale. It is, we are saving lives, you know, for digital signage. Maybe you can kind of argue, you know, we have safety messages on screens in manufacturing facilities and that saves life, but it's not as direct um, and you can't, I, I feel like not as immediately recognized as the positive social impact.
0: Nancy, like, I, I have to wonder and I have to ask for any and probably all listeners out there as a 2021-some-year-old, how did you build the confidence and the skill sets to be such a, um, an amazing CEO, right? <laughs> to be able to have that ability to convince people, make the right hires. And like, how did you learn these things at such a young age?
1: I don't know if I was a very good CEO in the early days. I definitely think I got better. My co-founders made me a better CEO. They were always very honest and transparent, gave me a lot of feedback. I think feedback from people and being willing to accept feedback definitely helps. And so I think just from a young age, I was involved in a lot of activities where you constantly had feedback and you constantly knew if you were doing well or not. For example, in the early days, it was piano. uh, And with piano you every single week when you have your piano lesson you get feedback you're playing like you're playing that wrong you need to play that louder you need to play that softer this is classical you're playing it like the romantic style don't do that so there's constant feedback and so I think I was always very receptive and open okay all right this is how I improve and I think a constant striving for improvement ensures that I'm pushing myself to always learn and adjust. Uh, And then in high school, I was doing lots of different organizations and extracurricular activities, volunteering at different places, different leadership roles and student government, was elected Colorado's youth governor. And throughout that process, I'm interacting with lots of different people, people that are my age, my peers, people that are younger than me when I was teaching dance, people that are much older than me when I was uh, the youngest intern for the Colorado State Legislature. And so I think... Having the feedback and interactions with all of those different people, I think, made me just be able to immediately recognize, your know, strengths, weaknesses that I have, but also be able to identify easily, you know, what are other people's strengths and weaknesses and how to bring them together. So similarly, in college, it was the same thing. I mean, I'm around some of the most brilliant people I'd ever met in my life. I'm around teachers and professors in the world. And I'm getting involved in lots of school activities, one of them being ASUC. And I was elected executive vice president for the ASUC, which when you're serving is one of the most humbling experiences in your life, because every single day you feel like you're not doing the right thing. You're getting yelled at by your own party and you're getting yelled at by the other party. And so that was a great learning experience where it was always trying to find compromise and just trying to do your best and knowing you're probably failing uh, miserably or you certainly feel like you're failing miserably, but you just kind of take it a day at a time. And so I think that taught me sometimes no matter in what situation things are going to work out, sometimes it's it's not, but you have to try and just try to do your best. And I think the confidence probably came just because I had interacted with so many different people, people that I worked really well with, people that I had to learn how to work well with, the exposure to different groups, ideas, backgrounds I think was really helpful so that when I did pitch investors and really successful people it was I had interacted with so many people in my life that from a young age when I was 16 and interning for the Colorado State Legislature interning directly for the speaker of the house of Colorado I wasn't intimidated it was just sort of you know natural like they're all uh, people that want to do uh, the best thing and you are there to also help and try to make uh, the people around you successful so every time I just went in with that mindset, I made it less intimidating.
0: That's really interesting. Cause I I was along those same lines about to ask you, you know, again, for any aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening and from a CEO to another, I still deal with imposter syndrome to this day, once in a while. And I'm just really curious if you can think back to when you started, you were probably 20, 21 at the time. Did you have any imposter syndrome? And if so, like how did you overcome imposter syndrome in these situations? as such a young CEO?
1: I think I didn't really think about it because for me growing up all the time, I was always the outsider. I was always like very different. And so when I started, as a CEO role, it didn't really feel that different. It was like I've always sort of been the outsider going into a group that generally was always smarter and more experienced than me. Because I always wanted to spend time with people that I admire that had accomplished more, more than me. So again, always the newbie or the yeah the new person on the block, the outsider, the one that lacks the experience and expertise that everybody else had. Even for ASUC, most of the folks that you know serve in the executive. Role. They were previously senator. I didn't serve as a senator. I was like, it was, I was a sophomore at the time and had just been introduced to the ASCC and ran. So definitely people in my own party didn't like that because they didn't feel like I went through, you know, all the hazing to deserve to run for the party and executive position. So I think going into CEO role, I didn't feel that, even though certainly I was always very aware when I walked into any meeting with an investor that I looked very different than them, that I was probably one of the younger people uh, pitching them. And I didn't have the successful companies I'd already sold uh, that I can talk about. It was like, oh, I just finished college and didn't even graduate, but but you know, finished the four years. I did the four years there. And so I I didn't let that really stop me. And I think I always just focused on, all right, what are my strengths? And I knew hmm. there were some strengths and advantages that I ha- could bring to the table whenever I went into a meeting, either with somebody I was trying to hire or an investor or a potential customer. And I was never afraid to make to ask. Like there was an investor that I met at a conference who's standing in line in front of me. And I pitched him at this conference and he became an investor. He asked me, well, first before that, he asked me to, some of my background, I mentioned I played piano and there was a piano there. And he was like, will you play piano right now? And I was like, all right, sure, I'll do it. And I played. He was impressed by it. And so he was like, you know, I invested in you because you mentioned something that you could do. And then I basically forced you to do it publicly in front of all these people and you weren't afraid and you played the piano and it was good. And that's why I invested. So I would always say, I think when it comes to building a company, making the ask and uh, not being you know, shy about showing what you're capable of and what your strengths are is going to help a lot.
0: I think that is probably the best answer I've ever heard. And I say that because as you were talking, I immediately realize what you're getting at when people feel imposter syndrome. People feel imposter syndrome because they think they should act a certain way that other people think they should act, right? It's like, I should be this way versus like, no, just be yourself. Like you are not an imposter to yourself. If you are this type of CEO, because this is who you are and you lead this way, that's who you are. Don't try to live up to somebody else's standard as to, oh, you should be this kind of CEO you know that's whatever, right? Like that's right. Like, I think that is an amazing insight. You don't have to worry about imposter syndrome. You're just being yourself.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> that's really great advice. That is actually so simple. <laughs> like sometimes I'll tell you this. Like I'm asking this question because I've always started and, and ran uh, lifestyle businesses, as I call them, bootstrap on my businesses. I never had to fundraise. Until this time, you know, starting clever. And I'm just like, oh, a tech CEO should be like this, should be this way, should act this way. I'm just like, you just made me realize, like, why? (laughs) Like, why am I trying to live in someone else's shoes when it's like I've clearly been able to start a business myself and I know what my strengths are. And instead of trying to pretend like I don't have weaknesses, I should embrace them and go seek ways and mentorship and advice to fill in the gaps. And that's just a much easier way to live. (laughs) I completely agree. So kind of on that note, and since it is International Women's Month, what advice do you have for female leaders today?
1: Yeah, I think so. Implug and my new company that is now my main thing that I focus on, Blaze Technology. My co-founder is Justina. She is brilliant. She was our CTO at Implug. She's my co-founder and co-CEO at Blaze. And so we've always run the company together. And I think one of the things, I mean, we already touched upon it, but I think as women leaders, one of the things I'm super grateful of is always just supporting one another and having a group of also awesome other women who are rallying around you and you're rallying around them. It makes it so much easier. And so I'm grateful that I always, I was always surrounded by amazing other women. In fact, I was looking at my bachelorette crew. Almost everyone in my bachelorette crew is CEO of a successful company. And I'm really grateful for that. And I think it's important to find that support system. And I think the way to do that is for me, always being like stepping up to wanting to help somebody. My goal, whenever I meet somebody new is... I just want to see how can I help them be more successful and achieve what they want to do and have zero expectations from there. I'm not looking for, hey, I'm going to give you this and then I hope you give this back to me or whatnot. It's always just super open minded, just there to support. And I think in my life, that approach has really helped me a lot and have been really helpful in introducing me to people that I otherwise wouldn't meet. and so the big piece is, yeah, find that community. And if that community is like one other awesome woman founder or leader, or maybe it's a, few, a whole tribe of them, it makes a huge difference and it makes it a lot more fun in the journey.
0: Couldn't agree more, uh, especially on your point around helping others without expecting much in return. That's something I've, I can see why you're so successful, because I have this similar philosophy and like, in terms of hiring and treating employees, like you want to build people up, right? Not hold them down. I do wonder, a pitfall that I've run into, at least I've seen with other people in being helpful, is how do you prevent burnout? Like how do you prevent burnout when you're just out there, you know, giving, giving, giving? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I I think I'm also thoughtful of if I give what I know it's my strength and it's going to be the a good use of my time because maybe there are some asks that people have where I'm not going to be the best person so it's going to take me a really long time uh, to go and try to help them and the method that they need Uh, and so I am generous in uh, giving where I know this is my expertise, it's not going to take much time uh, and I'll make that connection oftentimes it's making an introduction, oftentimes it's when people ask me to recommend speakers for different panels or events, I actually have a spreadsheet of anyone that I meet at an event Event, and I actually will write notes of, you know, what they're looking for. And I literally on my Google sheets, especially uh, there's one where it's awesome woman founders and entrepreneurs so that anytime somebody's like, oh, I'm looking for some great uh, woman entrepreneurs in New York, I have my list of awesome entrepreneurs that are up and coming that I had just met that I can recommend to them or if they needed uh, folks in San Francisco or L.A., uh, so actually being methodical about it, I think, makes it a lot easier. Um, and then there are some asks where I'm like, that's outside of my expertise, so I can't help you there. And I think overall, I think the burnout relates to because I have a lot of conversations with my friends about burnout, and I feel really grateful that I, I don't feel burnout. I think, and that's that's like rare, right? And I know that's rare, but I th- I think a big part of it is not feeling guilty when you just need to take time off. And so I actually have a really good work-life balance and I always felt like I did, even from when I first started Implug. And everyone I remember in high school was like, if you keep on going at this pace, by the time you're in college, you're going to feel so burned out. And when I was in college, people are like, oh, when you go into the work life and you're going doing all these activities, you're going to feel so burned out. And I never felt burnt out because I think I was always like, hey, if I just need to take a day, just play piano, read, go running, go hiking, I just do it. In the early days, I felt really guilty about it. But I think overall, it made me much more efficient and happy and uh, productive. And even now, I do a bunch of trips. I go to places, even though I'm launching this new company, I understand the rigor of starting a new company. But at the same time, I also know if I'm not taking care of myself, it's going to hurt overall. The net is going to be negative. And so I, that's how I sort of approach it when it comes to giving and helping, not burning out. I think it's all connected into how we treat our life and our time our health, our body. And I'll just add one more thing I think that makes a big impact for me was I lost a parent when I was, I feel like young. I was 21. I lost my mom. She had cancer. And I think that also, and she was sick for a couple of years and I just remember her always saying, she's like, wow, if I knew I was only going to live like this short life. I would have done this. I would have spent more time with you guys. I would have spent less time stressing at work. I would have traveled more. And I think that really stuck with me that no matter what, at the end of the day, it is like the time that you spend with friends and the fulfillment you get. Yes, I get lots of fulfillment from work, but that's certainly not the only place I get it from. I get a lot of fulfillment from volunteering, from music, from travel and from producing TV shows, etc., and so I think that also made a very strong imprint on me in how I approach life, living, and how hard I am on
0: myself. Is that something that you've built in the culture of your companies as well? Where, because I'm, I'm actually wondering, like, how do you communicate with your teams when you need time off to say, "Hey, look, uh, I need to take a step back," without instilling, like, without instilling worry, right? like sometimes as a ceo like i've talked to other ceos as well i i feel like sometimes when we communicate that we need a break it signals potentially the wrong signal to your co-founder or the team that hey like something's wrong do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah it's interesting um i think the culture of however hard people work or the hours, I think it always gets reflected of what are the CEOs and co-founders doing? You don't even have to communicate or say anything or write anything down. It's simply how much time do you take off? How long are you in the office for is the strongest signal. So in the early days, we lived and worked together in one house, the co-founders and the employees. So it was 24-7. But that was sort of what I enjoyed at the time. And I would want to do, because when I was at Berkeley, you know, we would do these hackathons. And these hackathons would be, you know, 36 hours of no sleep. All you're doing is just coding whatever app you're building and then presenting it completely sleep-deprived to a panel of judges at the end of this 36-hour marathon. And so I loved stuff like that. Sometimes it was like 48 hours or 72 hours, but I really love stuff like that. Uh, And so in the early days of Impleg, I remember I was like, all right, engineering team, this weekend, we're going to do a 48-hour marathon sprint and get this feature out. And we like did some of those, but you know, we also hired people from the professional world. Again, this was my first full-time job. I had never worked full-time at another company. Um, So like I said, I don't know if I was a very good CEO in the early days. And I remember my co-founders are like, you know, some of the engineers are kind of pissed. Like this is just like, they want to have their weekends to do other stuff. Like, yes, you might want to be in plug 24 seven, but this is not what they uh, want to be doing. And it was sort of like this. I remember when I got that feedback, I was like, what do you mean? Like, this is a startup. You're telling me, like, they want to do something else on the weekend that's <laughs> not the company? Certainly, the company evolved as time went on. We became very family oriented later on. Uh, we would actually do team vacation, like, uh, right before COVID. We we're super happy that we did it before COVID hit. We took everyone and their spouses or significant other um, to Mexico, to Puerto Verde. And it was a full vacation, four days, like no work, no meetings, nothing. It wasn't like a fake, oh, we're going to go like do a vacation. No, it was full on vacation. People did whatever they want. People hung out and uh, we paid for their significant others to be there as well because we wanted to make sure that we weren't taking time away from their families. And that was I think a very good summary that was a good, great reflection of what the company had evolved to, which was that people have other lives. They have families, they have kids, they have hobbies, and we would support them. We were part of a lot of different sports leagues in LA. A lot of folks were friends outside of work and we'd hang out outside of work, but it was definitely an evolution since the early days where we all lived and worked together under one house to shifting to being much more of a uh, culture where it's really emphasizing work-life balance. And part of that is because my co-founders and I really cared about work-life balance. Uh, My co-founder, Justina and Bruno, they love scuba diving, and they love traveling around the world to go scuba diving. And so that was a signal to other teammates that, hey, you can take vacations. It's okay to take time off. And you would rarely see me in the office past six or seven PM. And I'd go in maybe like eight or nine, maybe later. Um, And so people understood like, if you get your work done, that's fantastic. And you're contributing and you're contributing to the team, both from a product work perspective and the culture, then that's great. I don't need you to be pulling hundred hour weeks.
0: Yeah. I like that message a lot because You basically went from feeling guilty about it to saying like, no, this is the culture we want to build. So I'm going to lead by example that I don't need to feel guilty about stepping away from work to have time for myself. (laughs) And uh, because that is kind of the culture that a lot of people are instilled in, right, is that you you feel guilty if you're not running your business or doing work or being a CEO. It's like, no, like if that's really the culture we want to promote, we should be promoting that ourselves without feeling guilty about it. That's a really good message.
1: And everyone, every CEO is going to be a little different. Like I stopped comparing myself to other CEOs where they can just work 24 seven, seven days a week and just think about their business. I admire them for that. I can't do yeah. that. Uh, so I don't try to do that.
0: I 100% agree. <laughs> um, all right. In our last few minutes, um, I have some lightning round questions for you. right? just to end everything on a light note. What are uh, your favorite books? or What are you reading lately?
1: Ah, I've been actually averaging reading one book a week this year, um, which is much higher than in in past years. But let's see, some of the books that I've really enjoyed reading recently, one of them, um, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, the awesome poker player. I really like that book. I also really like The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I thought that was fantastic. I... Really enjoyed reading. There's some fun fiction books that are just hilarious. Um, one of them, uh, it, it's super entertaining. It's called Devious Lies. If people haven't read it, the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy is fantastic. I oh. had so much fun uh, reading those books. They're great. They're great fiction. What else have Oh, I just read... This is what I finished last week. Um, what it takes by Stephen A. Schwartzman, the founder CEO of Blackstone. and that was fantastic. He uh, incredible leader. and I love what he does not only in building businesses but his philanthropic and civic engagement. I really admire
0: favorite place to travel
1: right now. it's any ski resorts and just snowboarding as much as I can. So I I love anywhere there's some great mountain and some great snow.
0: I think that about wraps it up. This is a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Nancy.
1: Oh, Sean, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for what you're doing for uh, the Berkeley and the Haas community. This is, I think, such a gift for all students and
0: alumni. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.